evening all and welcome to Kino Kingdom 49 hurtling towards um, not just the 50th episode but also I don't fully understand how Podbean works but our thousandth either listen or download or but that's which is cool numbers are nice yep. um, so yeah <clears throat> um, just to just just to kick off and say that this has been about three weeks since the last one and I have got a lot of films. I thought I had more than I did. I've got 18, but I okay. looked at a couple of them and it, <laughs> I looked at a couple of them and I thought, I'm not talking about that. And and when you listen to the films I do choose to talk about, it will give you an idea of the quality of those films. One of these films, I'm literally just going to like say a, like a single sentence about move on from it. Okay. Um, yeah. So possibly um, a Godfrey Ho film, I'm not sure. No, no, no. I've Who's to page, say? I've got a page of notes from that. Also, just assume I saw all of these Amazon Prime. Just assume <laughs> okay. they're all primers. Um, yeah, so, yeah, this is Kino Kingdom 49. And uh, before we kick off, Rupert, I suppose we should talk about the Arkansas from last oh, time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, because I had a few responses from my listeners, and... Uh, if you if you don't remember, it was to get from in how few steps can you get from Bonnie Bedelia to Matt Damon. Now that one, I remember when we did it, I kind of just tossed it off, thinking it would be quite cool because it's it's the generational difference that's often the the, the toughie. Yes. But actually, people have just kicked my ass with it. They've come straight back. So before you, have you done this by the way? Before? I have. I nice. have. Okay. So I'm gonna um, go through the, the the responses we had. Um, and, ho- and hope that they beat you because at the moment it's two to the audience and minus 16 to you. So you've got to put cash. It's pretty brutal, isn't it? <laughs> so I've got Yo, Arkansas. And oh, sorry, this is from Laszlo Buckets. Yo, Arkansas, having gone down a number of convoluted avenues, I suddenly realized that I'd been ignoring Bruce Willis the whole time, much like his agent in some respects. <laughs> so Bonnie Bedelia was in Die Hard with Brucey, who was in Ocean's 12 with Matt Damon. And then. So that's the two-stepper. But then a boom, by the way, I just learned that Bonnie Bedelia's actual surname is Culkin and that she is Macaulay Culkin and Kieran Culkin's aunt. Really? Did yes. not know that. Yeah. Wow. Which, now, which now makes this an educational variety show and it shall be labelled as such on <laughs> podcast hosting sites. Um, uh, this one is from Backflip Temp and this is Bonnie Bedelia was in Die Hard with Alan Rickman, who was in Dogma with Matt Damon. Dogma, possibly the last... I say decent film by... um, We won't go into that. It's it's a film I need to revisit, I think. His other ones, they they really didn't hold up for me, as we've discussed on the podcast. He has a filmography of variable quality, yes. (laughs) And um, the last one from Utah Smith, who we'll be hearing more from in a second... Um, Randomly, I can do this straight away. Bonnie Bedelia was in Bad Manners with David Strathairn, who was in the bar, who was in Born Ultimatum with Matt Damon. So there's a lot of like, there's a lot of like a couple steppers there. So which avenue did you take? I I did also take the Oceans Avenue. Mm. However, I didn't realise that Bruce Willis was in any of the Oceans films, so that didn't help. Um, so I went. Bonnie Bedelia is in Die Hard with Bruce Willis, who's in 12 Monkeys with Brad Pitt, who's in Ocean's Eleven with Matt Damon. So you've lost because we had a few Yes, steps that's minus lost. 40 points for that. So, <laughs> brutal. And two gold stars for the audience. Um, yeah. You did just breeze over the fact there that not only is Bruce Willis 
in the Oceans trilogy. He is in, with Julia Roberts in the single worst scene of the trilogy. Okay. It's uh, it's it was I was watching it. And I thought they really. It was like a scene where Julia Roberts plays herself, if you know what I mean. And Bruce Willis is like, oh, talking about her family stuff. That they, they, oh, it was dreadful, and it goes on and on, and is like a key part of the plot. It's dreadful. Um, so yeah, just really quickly, and I might revisit this next next episode as well. Utah Smith. Um, I was just chatting to him, and I mentioned that I'd never seen a Fast and the Furious film, uh, and I was thinking about maybe doing a Rupert and you know going through the going through the. I, I don't even know how many films there are. Just just idly watching them it's just like to see what they're like. Well, I have no idea. But he, he said, um, well, I'll save you the time and I'll do it. And uh, he sent me a lot of messages and boswells after this. But he this is this is what initially tickled me. And it's I'm going to watch them to pinpoint the moment that Vin Diesel and Paul Walker and their crew transcend from street racing, street racing DVD player thieves to the people the CIA turned to to stop supervillains in the later ones. It gets insane. They push it a little bit further in every film until one moment you think, hang on, didn't you used to own a car garage and a little cafe in L.A. and street race on the side to make money? I only asked because now he's in space. (laughs) (laughs) That really tickled me. So, yeah, because, of course, I just thought it was just car porn, you know, just like gone in 60 seconds. But then, yeah, when you look at like the the, um, synopses of the, the newest ones, it's just it's like, what? And yeah, apparently, well, apparently he, the characters like Han just die and just get just get brought back without yeah. any kind of. I, well, it, it sounds amazing. I I only I mean, the first one I watched was like six or something like that, which is where it kind of jumped the shark and became <laughs> something. It became something you know much larger than life, and it the the formula tends to be like they'll in each film they'll introduce a new villain played by an action movie star like Jason Statham, whatever. And he'll be a complete evil bastard and they'll take him down, possibly kill him. Doesn't really make a difference. He can come back to life. But the next film, they will basically be that person's friend um, and he will then join the family and they'll be taking someone else down who will then go on to become part of the family. It's ridiculous. Hating someone and then killing them so they can come back and love you and be your friend it was Jeffrey Dahmer's modus operandi, wasn't it? Yeah, I think so. Oh, yeah. Inspired by Jeffrey. <laughs> Inspired by Jeffrey. At the end of Fast yeah. Cruise 6, it just says, for Jeffrey in italic writing at the end. <laughs> All our love, we miss you, Jeff. Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, so, uh, yeah, it's time to hurtle into the films, really. I mean, I've got, like, I've got a few, but it, it, I'm, it, a lot of these are breezes for me, so they're Bacardis. So. Is, um, is it okay if I just have a moment to uh, just mention uh, Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power? Is that on the, um, the Savalas? This, this is, it is on the Savalas, um, but it's it, it's the most expensive TV series ever made. Oh, um, wow, okay. And it's out this September, and they released the first trailer uh, recently, which is pretty much a minute of basically wordless footage. So I made the mistake of looking at what people were saying online about this. There it is. Yeah. And the two main complaints are, first of all, uh, like just dodgy CGI. And the second complaint was uh, a black elf. And Alpha is black. Okay, so first, okay, the CGI thing. Well, 
all you have to do is look at the state of the CGI in the original trilogy. It, I mean, in Return of the King, it looks horrible for large stretches of it, uh, and it hasn't dated well. I mean, the Ghost Army looked terrible 20 years ago. It doesn't look any better now. So, they, I mean, that stuff, whatever. But the thing about <laughs> the thing about the Black Elf, um, which was obviously never seen before, but um, for, right, okay. I know a bit about Tolkien. J.R. Tolkien obviously wrote the books, and um, and I've researched a little bit about this. But basically, Tolkien, who, by the way, was a Hitler-hating man who publicly opposed apartheid and any racial doctrine. By the way, anyway, he never specified that all elves are white. Just as he never mentioned that they had pointy ears. By the way, that stuff Ooh. is just the the stuff basically the, the Twitterverse morons are complaining about is stuff which is in, imposed externally onto Tolkien's work, and it, the the Lord of the Rings is all about humans, elves, and dwarves essentially. They're the races which in which the Middle Earth conflicts play out, and whatever like assumed medieval Northern European iconography people want to lay on top of that, it makes no difference. It's it's like if you're going to get up in arms about a brown elf, why not, for example, criticise Peter Jackson for casting a white actor as Samwise Gamgee in the films? Because he is literally described as brown in the books, not swarthy or tanned or something like that, but brown. So why, why are you not kicking off about that? And also, it's like this black elf in this new TV series is a completely new character. So it's not like they've cast like... Whoopi Goldberg as Galadriel or something like that, you know. And on top of that, it's like it's the Black Elf who gets the one truly awesome moment in the trailer where he like snatches a flying arrow out of the air and fires it back at the enemy. So I can't wait for that. And I would like to remind these folks who are getting all precious about their version of Lord of the Rings that they should consider that they have no greater ownership over Tolkien's vision than the showrunners at Amazon, frankly. In fact, they have $250 million less ownership. So I think they should pipe down. That's all I have to say about that. Give you a little round of applause there, Rupert. I thought that was really well said. I've, I've got nothing to add apart from, well, I'm obviously not not particularly a big fan of like Tolkien or the films, but I, I just think that, that whenever the issues of, of like race have been brought up on the show in whatever TV yep. shows or films they rise in, they're just things that I never notice. I mean, I I, no. I think I was thinking about the original trilogy, and I honestly couldn't tell you if the entire you know, apart from like the main characters, if it was an entire like Asian army, I wouldn't. It's just just a film I watched. I I'm not sitting right. there waiting to be offended or <laughs> impose my own ideals on something. It's yeah, it's just an alien concept to me. And um, no, that's really well said. I got nothing to add. And no. yeah, well, Tolkien never specified the elves were white, all white so that's all you need to know really it's, it's you know what from these various conversations where you, you you've said these sort of things it sounds like on the internet there can be like a, like a, a large group of wankers <laughs> you wouldn't believe it 
Uh, it would cheaper it, but yeah, unfortunately there are one or two. Yeah, unbelievable. That's why I'm glad I've just got a Commodore 64. And I can't go on the internet apart from to do this and record it and edit it. Um, so yeah, I've got a hundred million films to go through. Excellent. So you back crack on. I'll, I'll crack on. Okay, so I'll start. I'll start at the top. A lot of these are going to be two minutes. I'm not even going to introduce them as such. I watched American Ninja Five. Um, which is a 1993 martial arts film starring David Bradley, who replaced Michael Dudikoff. Mm-hmm. Um, Michael Dudikoff was in one and two. Uh, I think David Bradley was in three. They both returned in the fourth, but then David Bradley went solo in the fifth film. And this is um, this film is it's okay, but it, it's quite tonally unbalanced in that um, <clears throat> David Bradley is the American Ninja in the film, and he trains in a dojo until Pat Morita turns up with his nephew and literally says, oh, can you look after him for me? And David Bradley says, pardon? And Pat Morita disappears in an actual puff of magic smoke. Good. Wow. Uh, Bearing in mind, this is set in modern LA. Um, the most impressive part of this film, apart from the, the really misjudged sort of comedy b- a buddy duo between him and this 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 young nephew is the fact that the nephew's game gear he's playing top gun on it and he plays top Mm. gun on a game gear for the length of the film which is like 90 minutes and we all know that within 15 minutes (laughs) those batteries would be no more um all six of them Um, yeah i was gonna say (laughs) all six industrial sized batteries especially if they were rocket batteries from hyper value um so yeah so the film is just like sort of it like the fight sequences are sort of okay but it's it's sort of you'll have a decent fight sequence because David Bradley's obviously a very capable martial artist, and then it'll just be unbalanced with a load of sort of silly circus music and then pratfalls. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a is moment going for a Jackie Chan vibe or something. It could be. I think they are maybe going going for that. Um, I'm not too sure of Jackie Chan's filmography to say what it would have been, but like the the David Bradley, sorry, the uh, Michael Dudikoff movies with Steve James were they, they were like they were actually like had a little bit of sort of simplistic chemistry so it sort of worked when they had their moments in this it's just a man who can't act talking to a child that can't act and uh, there's a moment in this where the the nephew gets like hit by a ninja and gets knocked out and david bradley says to him i'll you know i'll teach you the ways of the ninja and there is within a day the, the kid is suddenly a capable ninja or supposedly so uh, by the way the way that when the kid gets knocked out and gets really wounded, the way that David Bradley sort of cares for him is to put him on a thin blanket on the edge of a castle parapet. So if, for example, he rolled over in his sleep, he would be dead. But no, he just sits bolt upright and turns into a ninja. Good. Um, it's 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 silly. It's not particularly good. And it's the last American Ninja film. So uh Mm. It, yeah, I mean, if you if you're gonna watch them, it's not it's not bad if you're kind of ready for some silly fun. But I mean, American Ninja Two was such a high watermark. I don't know yeah. what we bothered with the rest of them for. So if if I wanted to watch American Ninja, I mean, should I just stop at two? Or? Yeah, I mean, maybe even maybe even miss one. I mean, because <laughs> two <laughs> is two is just so good that right. um, yeah. There's also a scene in this film, by the way, where the bad guys David Bradley gets in the back of like a transit van. And the bad guys open the van and it's clearly empty. Like there's nothing in there. And you see a POV shot of this empty van and they mm. turn around like, oh, he's gone. And he just comes out of it and kicks someone in the back. And I thought that's mm. act, that's magic. 
It's actual magic. It's actual magic. That's like, that's like Pat Morita level magic. <laughs> like the top gold star <laughs> of magic. The stuff, this wasn't just like, you know, floating or cutting a woman in half. This was Pat Morita level magic. <laughs> this is where he literally disappeared and reversed <laughs> Um So, yeah, um, American Ninja 5, not the high watermark of the series. Okay. Uh, then more. Did you watch any other American Ninja films or? Uh, no, no, I, I did. I could quickly do Shoot Fighter. Oh, I yeah, did. Cool. I did watch Shoot Fighter um, one and two, and th- this was interesting because it stars William Zabka uh, and Martin okay. Cove. Uh, William Zabka ben- of Karate Kid fame. Yes, exactly. So he's in this. He is uh, with Michael Bernardo. They play sort of sparring partners in L.A. And Bolo Young plays a good guy, which is unusual. And he is that this is. sort of sensei. And they get dragged down to Mexico for these really dodgy underground fights. And William Zabka gets drawn into the bloodthirsty lifestyle. And Michael Bernardo, who's got the most amazing hair in the world. <laughs> like, so man or woman, the man has the best hair. And, um, and, and he is sort of trying to pull William Zabka out of it. And I was surprised with this because it's a very it's a very typical martial arts film. You know, it's different arenas and they fight, you know, at the end, they put against each other sort of thing. And Martin Cove is, is the main bad guy. But he's also in Karate Kid. Yeah, of course. And maybe that's why they made this in 1993. Mm. Um, but what may, what sort of differentiates this is the fact that it's extremely bloodthirsty. Mm-hmm. Um because they, they they get taken down there's like you can earn a load of like you know a lot of money from these fights and then when they turn up before they get pushed into the arena they're like oh by the way it's a fight to the death off your trot and they just push them in the ring and shut the door behind them and so of course you get like swords and nunchucks and stuff and there's just lots of like really horrible scenes where people will just get their throats slashed open by a serrated blade and the camera will just linger on Jesus. them as they just gurgle themselves to death while the other fighter either laughs at them or just frowns and thinks oh, wow. that took that took a turn um yeah bola young turns up at the end his motivations aren't entirely clear um <laughs> but uh, and this sums up the first film and the second film this was made in 93 the sequel was made in 96 there are sequences in this film that are racist, Rupert. In the first <laughs> film, the only, uh, from memory, the only sort of black fighter is a man who is going round on all fours and making monkey noises. And there's a, a like a quite an extended sequence where he jumps on the cage of the, the thing. And it's clearly dubbed. Like the, the actor is clearly sort of shouting like, yeah, yeah. But it's just monkey sounds are dubbed wow. over the top. And it goes on for a good 30, 40 seconds. And I thought, uh, okay. Something so, similar happened in Bloodsport, didn't it? And yes. But this very sounds similar. even more racist. But but don't worry, because it gets even worse. Uh, in in, in Shoot Pointer 2, the sequel, which has the same characters in it, the same luxurious hair, apart from Martin Kova, who's dead. Um, spoiler alert. Um, the only black character in that is a non-verbal, feral man who comes on actually eating a hunk of raw meat in the ring <laughs> and then just grunts through the match wow so it's quite astonishing um yeah so the, but apart from that the martial arts are actually quite decent and um they, well, they're quite well choreographed and like i said they're quite bloodthirsty which is unusual for mid-90s martial arts films uh so they tend to be more sort of either balletic or just really cheap so yeah, shoot fighter films. If you like your martial arts sort of tournament fighters, you you know you can't really go far wrong with it to be honest. So is it worth watching both? 
despite yeah, the races. Yeah, they're effectively the same film. The second okay. one feels somehow cheaper, even though it's made later, but um, they, they both deliver the goods. The first okay. one is the, is the better film. Shoot a fighter. Okay. They're both on Prime? <laughs> yeah. I think you know the answer to that one. Um, okay. I've been watching some newer films uh, this week. Uh, so 1997, you watched one, <laughs> did you? <laughs> Actually, I did watch one from 98, so yeah, it's going back a bit. But I also watched a very new one. Uh, I watched Encanto on Disney+, Plus, nice. which is the 60th Disney masterpiece, do they call them? Um, but anyway, it's a one with, it's got songs by Lin-Manuel Miranda, and We Don't Talk About Bruno is obviously stupendously popular. Um but all the songs are good. It's set in Colombia. It focuses on a multi-generational family who reside in this idyllic living house. Um, literally, the house is alive. E- each child like comes of age and is given a gift. Uh, and it could be like super strength or shape-shifting, something which is going to be useful to the community. Um, they're all given a gift except Mirabelle, who is the hero of the story, who has no gift. And the story is about Mirabelle uncovering the truth about her uncle Bruno, who is effectively forced out of the family because of a potentially dire vision of the future. And now he literally lives in the walls of the house. Uh, so Mirabelle ends up on this mission to bring Bruno back into the family and resolve the underlying tensions with her sisters and aunts and uncles and that to literally stop the house from collapsing around them. It is possibly the most beautifully animated film I've ever seen, actually. It's gorgeous, and it's just so amazingly detailed with the character movements and stuff. And they're really getting faces right nowadays. Uh, It's genuinely pretty strange at times, and but it's also very warm, and it does come together in the end in a pretty predictable way, it must be said. Uh, My personal favourite character was Luisa, who's this... She's a teenager, but she's absolutely enormous, like colossal. And she can like lift whole houses, but she's also the most like sweet natured and sensitive of everyone. So it's quite a nice bit of like kind of a counterintuitive body positivity. That was nice. Um, as a film, it's more kind of magical than funny, I'd say, uh, possibly for slightly older kids because it's quite talky and, and the themes are pretty complex. They're like stuff to do with loyalty and duty and family obligation and stuff in terms of the criticisms i would say it's definitely sentimental although i would also argue that it earns it and on a just a personal thing that slightly bothers me about disney films is i'm wondering whether they're ever going to bring back the notion of an actual proper bad guy in their films because they don't really seem to do that anymore it's very much like well, if there is a bad guy, they're just someone who's misunderstood. Um, and sometimes I feel like we just we need to see a return of the irredeemable wanker at some point. But we're not going to get it here. Uh, but yeah, that's that's just a personal thing. Overall, I'd say this is a, a quite a lovely film, really. Uh, and the music and the visuals are varied uh, enough and engaging enough to survive repeated child viewings. So. I can I can vouch for that. When was the last? Uh, it's interesting you should say that because the other day I watched um, 
Beauty and the Beast. Yes. Um, I put it on for my son and he fell asleep literally before the film started. I watched the whole thing, which is unusual for me because I'm not really one for Disney. But I thought this is another film kind of like Star Wars that I've just seen bits of and I I thought I'd watch it. And I was surprised because I I generally found I didn't know Angela Lansbury was in it for a start Mm. um, or the dad at a dirty dancing, to put it. (laughs) And um, I was watching it and I thought this, this I'm really enjoying this. Uh, the design of the beast is great, and the music was fantastic. Mm. And and this this the sequence with where everyone is just sucking off gas, you know, like mm-hmm. <laughs> figuratively, and they're saying "amazing" is is genuinely really funny. I yes. actually burst out laughing at the scene where he snaps a leather belt by tensing his throat. I thought he would have to imagine. Imagine got your personal trainer saying, "I, you know, we worked on my my quads and my triceps. Really want to work on my throat today. Really want to just in case I need to snap some manacles. Should I ever be thrown underwater?" And the trainer just whips his belt off, <laughs> trousers down, <laughs> in a comedy way. Start strangling you. Um, come on, get out of this. Um, I said, start training. Um, so yeah, no, that, it was interesting because obviously in that you've got Gaston who's pretty redeemable and just smug and and de- guesses yeah. come up and sort of thing. Um, and it is quite dark how he just forces himself on yeah. like beauty in that. It's okay. quite a dark film, really. Well, of course yeah. Disney are going basically just trawling their back catalogue, taking all their bad guys and like trying to humanise them and make excuses for them. It's quite an odd sight to see. Um, but yeah, so yeah, I, but. Um, this is yes. This is much more to do with family dynamics and stuff. But Encanto is a good film, and the music is good. No, yeah. if 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 anyone can remember when the last time Disney had like a, a an identifiable irredeemable bad guy, send us a sneaky email at um, themenwhotalkatoutlook.com because I'm intrigued about that. I'm I'm wondering if it's Wreck It Ralph because <sighs> in that film, like the bad guy is a nasty nasty bad guy. Uh, and I can't think of one after that. Do you have I'm after that? Th- like Moana? No. She was redeemed. Um, anyway, well, we'll give it some thought, shall we? I watched, I watched No Retreat, No Surrender from ni- 1986, which is a film. I, I This is a film that I watched easily probably over 100 times when I was a kid. But on VHS and Hatch. But I haven't revisited it at all in my adulthood. Like literally, for it must be like going on a quarter of a century, probably more actually. And uh, and it was on yes Amazon Prime. And I thought, Christ, I haven't um, I haven't watched that for a while. I put it on, and it was like I'm not going to review it fairly at all because it was such an enormous trip down memory lane. Like I remembered every scene. Um. So the the, the sequence the, the the plot is that um, uh, Kurt McKinney stars as Jason Stilwell, who is, uh, goes to a karate dojo run by his father. More on him in a minute. Uh, and the dojo was sort of approached by... They kind of made out to be this sort of weird mafia that, that seemed to go around taking over karate dojos, like, forcibly, as if there's, like, lots of money in it, which is a really odd plot point. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so, yeah, they go. he goes there. And Jean-Claude Van Damme, I think it's one of his... I think it was, like, one of his... It was filmed before, I guess, Bloodsport, but released afterwards so they they try they bring him in it as much as possible to sort of uh you know make the most of him and he's the main henchman who's you know i can beat anyone and he really fiercely breaks um jason Silver's father's leg so he has to sell the doge in la and they move to seattle which is apparently where bruce lee is buried and they visit his grave uh, and he comes back obviously from the dead to teach jason how to defend himself 
Well, there's a lot of things near that. There's the chubby bully that um, uh, sort of beats down on on Jason and his friend, who is um, effectively someone who appears to just idolize Michael Jackson. Uh, there's a break, there's a breakdown sequence in this film that I put to you isn't performed by the actor that plays the character. Um, <laughs> But yeah, what, what what got me about this one was like the, the the fight sequences are sort of slightly sped up in a way that it works. And you know, every time someone throws a punch or lands a kick, it's a it's a really like nasty. It just sounds like a shotgun going off, which is nice and visceral. And there's there's, there's some pretty tasty fight sequences in it by obviously very capable martial artists. So there's some nice choreography going on. Um, but what? really stood out for me weirdly was watching it as an adult was the story in the background of his father mm. because whereas he's kind of pushed he keeps on cutting back to him but it's because in these films in fact because this was written off as a as a karate kid ripoff yeah. and but what was interesting is like his father runs a dojo and he's like you know sort of his son's training under him and his father obviously has his leg broken really fiercely and he's basically on like a, a you know a walking stick for the rest of the movie and they have to move away and stuff and he, and he ends up working in a bar but every time it cuts back to him he's got a really surprisingly convoluted sort of uh subplot in it, it but it's purely mm. in his in in, in in how he approaches things like he he refuses to to use martial arts and he sort of he he, he sort of takes out his anger on his family and his son especially of his own sort of impotence at, at his inability to provide for the family um and even at the end of the film with the inevitable sort of retribution apps he still kind of abhors violence and is and, and he's still not quite on board with everything because because of his inability to do was to, to, to sort of fight and defend himself was taken away from him and it, i was watching i thought that's a surprisingly gently cerebral you know, like it really are heartfelt scenes with his father where he's just like getting beaten up by these like bums in a bar and refusing to fight back. And it's quite sad. And I just thought it was really interesting. And it's a shame, to be honest, that um, the, the sequels, I think they start, they, Kurt McKinney didn't, um, didn't, didn't reprise the role. Uh, it, it was he was replaced by Lauren Avedon, who is apparently like, a, again, a really capable martial artist who went on to have a career through the 80s and 90s. But uh, and I think um, Matthias Hewis from um, the 1990 film Dark Angel starring Dolph Lundgren, I come in peace, um, was one of the main bad guys in that. And they, they filmed in Thailand or something weird. But I quite like the small urban martial artsness of it. And it's a shame yeah. that after that, it just turned into just generic, like, oh, let's just film somewhere cheap and pretty. You know, it's quite a gritty film. And it might be written off as a Karate Kid ripoff, but to me, I think it's it's a good film. Obviously, I'm talking a lot from nostalgia, but... um. I, I think it's a nice, simple film, and keep your eye on your dad. On the dad. Is it up there with AWOL? Absent without leave. Oh, Rupert, I mean, now we're talking about different. Come on, now, <laughs> we're talking about different tiers here. <laughs> Certainly wouldn't have the raw emotional energy of that film. Um, okay. Uh, no retreat, no surrender. I might actually watch that. I'm, I'm yeah. in the mood for a bit of Jean. Um. His hair, by the way, is, and this is this is just how the Germans say it, swept back. <laughs> is his bum in this film? <laughs> he's his arse out. He's in it pretty briefly. Um, he does pull some faces, and he does, does he pull his trousers down. 
he just no, he's fully clothed. Yeah, the whole time. I I think at the very end he rips his vest off, but he's 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 at the most down to his tidy whiteies. You he never just gets his ass out. I yeah. don't think many people get their ass out when they're the henchmen of the mafia, and that's a bizarre plot point. Like I said, they go in, of course, because at the end they go to Seattle and they try to take over the new sort of dojo he's joined. And I thought, how much money is in like? teenagers learning karate in a dojo what are you going to get from this was it a few hundred quid a month <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah it's not exactly a gold mine is it um okay excellent um i will mention briefly now the crudes a new age which i watched on now tv <clears throat> which is a 2020 sequel to the 2013 original dreamworks animation now, the original was okay. It was like a step above Ice Age, I'd say. But I, I did. I actually watched these films. So OK, yeah. uh, but I, below Disney or Pixar level. But I'd say that the second Crudes film is a lot better than the first. And so in this one, the Crudes, this prehistoric family, they're, they're eking out an existence. And now Eep, uh, played by Emma Stone, uh, now Eep. Her boyfriend, Guy, played by Ryan Reynolds, is part of the family. And they stumble upon this like gated utopia nicknamed Tomorrow. And it's presided over by the Bettermans and this new age couple who've basically developed agriculture. They're kind of ashamed at the crew's behavior, but they knew Guy's parents. So they want him to stay and marry their daughter, but get rid of the crudes. Anyway, it turns out Tomorrow isn't quite as perfect as it seems. Um, Phil Betterman has been maintaining the peace by appeasing the local king kong with endless bananas and when the bananas run dry the crudes and the bettermans need to join forces to defeat the monkey um so the voice cast is really good it's nick cage uh as a dad emma stone as i said ryan reynolds not playing ryan or ryan reynolds for once and God. best of all leslie mann and Peter Dinklage is the Bettermans. Peter Dinklage is so funny in this film. He's brilliant. And and the voices, they, they're complemented by much improved visuals uh, and a, a more varied colour palette as well than the first one, which is, I found a bit drab. Um, so And the comedy is a nice blend of very broad slapstick um, uh, and some subtle visual humour as well. And I really like the scene... <laughs> where they meet the punch monkeys, uh, this tribe of monkeys who communicate completely, entirely through punching each other in the face and like yanking each other's ears and stuff, like the Three Stooges. So that was good. Um, Literally a chapter out of our book, by the way, The Dual Mirrors of Garothkark. No, yes. sorry. No, it's, it's the other one. Yeah, but that's literally, I'm going to sue them. <laughs> I think you should. I think you should sue DreamWorks. Um <laughs> I think there's a better balance of like crass humor and treacly sentimentality in this one as well. Uh, so I'd say it's recommended. It's still not top tier, but it is definitely recommended and better than the first one um, and visually much more appealing. So I enjoyed this. Sorry, I literally da dash. I literally dashed off then to try and find my book to read at the paragraph they've written me off. But looking <laughs> through through to like three units of books, finding the book, and then sitting here leafing through it to find a specific paragraph in a book. Classic uh, podcast material. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Honestly, the fans would come in their droves. Um, 
Yeah, I watched I watched the first one and I and I enjoyed it because I don't watch well, I don't watch too many um animated films, so I've got really no gauge for them. I just thought I enjoyed that and I like hearing Nicolas Cage's voice. And then of course the, I put this the sequel on and just you know, familial distractions sort of thing. So I didn't really drink it in. I'm not even sure if I heard Peter Dinklage, so I'm wondering if I just watched the first one twice, you know. Because I would recognize Peter Dinklage's voice because I heard him recently in an interview with Mark Maron and his voice is rich and beautiful and buttery and he's in the bar pouring me a pint. And he's and I and, and I'm asking him what this local beer tastes like, not because I want to know, just because I want to hear him talk to me. Yeah, I would hire Peter Dinklage just to read me a story at bedtime, I think. <laughs> I watched, this is a two-minute, I watched Wild Card starring Jason Statham. This is a film I've seen before. I mean, I think what happened was I watched this um, after watching the transport. It's directed by Simon West and uh, and also co-stars Michael Angarano, who is one of the best Weasley actors I've, I've come across. Um, Simon West did Conair. Am I just imagining that? Simon West did Conair. <laughs> Was that the theme song to Conair? <laughs> yeah. The bit where, like, he's, he's sort of shaking his dirty, greasy yeah. hillbilly here in the sunshine. And, then, and here comes Bonnie Tyler with the chorus. Yeah. You know, Simon West, doesn't it? He's like, oh, Simon West says, Cat, Nick, do you know what would go over that scene as you look up at the sun for the first time from leaving prison? Is me saying... Simon West did Connie. And Nick Cage is like, okay. Yeah, he did Tomb Raider the Mechanic, which is another decent Statham film. But, 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 but. I watched this uh, probably when it was originally released, 2015, 2016. And because I was expecting Jason Statham to just literally never let his fists stop moving, I was sort of disappointed. And I remember watching it and thinking, oh, that was a bit of a flat cop out uh, and it was only recently I thought well you know I, I really do fancy Jason Statham so I'm going to watch it again because I'm not stupid and and I appreciated it a much more it's based on a novel called Heat by William Goldman you'd think he would have realized that there's another film <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how that title actually would even translate into the narrative anyway it, right. so yeah it, it, obviously um, Jason Statham's name is Nick Wilde and he's a gambling addict who is is sort of a, a bodyguard in um in Las Vegas and he bumbles around just, you know, people who are gambling, if they win lots of money, he just looks after them, bumbles them into a taxi and then takes his cat sort of thing. And one of his friends is, is raped by, uh, by, by a big winner. And she wants Jason Statham to, to basically fight her corner and go back and um, give him what for and even the odds. And he's really reticent to get involved in violence. So, and, and the, the, the film is effectively very, Oddly, it felt long. In a, it's 92 minutes. It felt long. I could, I, I would have believed if this was two hours. It's him just bumbling around Las Vegas, fighting his conscience, which isn't oh. normally the sort of thing you'd expect from Jason Statham. And I can imagine this film was like pretty sort of lukewarmly received. But I actually just watching it now, I like the fact that he is bumbling around and how he he'll occasionally just descend into his old habits, and then you'll have punctuated extreme violence and then he'll sort of snap himself out of it and think oh, i'm doing what i used to do here but um yeah it's it's a pretty simple story and it's quite flashily told 
but a lot of, just watching him drive up and down the Vegas strip going into diners and having preposterous conversations with people but now I realise it's enough for me and uh, it's nice to see the, for Jason Statham to be in a film where he's not just constantly fighting but where yeah he might be moody and he might be sitting there telling people you know that he's very clever and he doesn't just fight but when he does fight you think good good mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so, so he does yeah. fight at some points oh yeah his fists come out of his pockets a couple of times mm. um and sometimes he looks at the other person and says my fist is going to come towards you at speed and it is not going to stop before there's a connection between fist and fist um a quite yeah. detailed internal monologue yeah and by the time they said that they just run off and he's like oh, <laughs> we're not fighting anyway then but no it's it's it's, it's a good film I, I i enjoyed it a lot more this time what's it called wild card Wild card, yeah. That sounds like it had another title in the US. I'm just let me just have a look see if I can. No, well his it's name is of... Nick Wild, so. Oh yeah, I suppose that makes sense. And it, it's about cards. Um, it's probably a better title than Heat, really, isn't it? Um, all right. So I, uh, I'll what? It's this on Prime, isn't it? It's bound to be on Prime. Yes, yes, it is. Yes. Yeah. Uh, also on Prime, a Prime original, in fact, is The Tender Bar which is the new film by George Clooney. My eyes have been looking at this. Okay. Because our boy is in it, isn't he? Uh, yes, he is. Um, so this is written by William Monaghan, who wrote The Departed, based on a, a novel by J.R. Moringer. And so it starts off in 1973, and this 11-year-old kid uh, and, well, and his mum fails to pay the rent, and they go back to live at... In, in grandpa's house grandpa's played by christopher lloyd good and, and good. also living there is uncle charlie's played by ben affleck so good. uh it was grandpa is a grunting oaf but charlie he's boorish but essentially a decent guy and he's kind of a father figure to the kid um uh and whose mother is determined that he's going to yale and we see jr is the kid's name see jr's early life he's hanging out in bars with his uncle getting life lessons etc then it's on to yale in 1986 and then that's when the older jr is played by our boy ty sheridan and he wants to be a writer and i like the evocation of the 80s it's it's like it's sort of pastel colors and devo on the radio and stuff it's not fetishized too much i'm looking at you wonder woman 84 uh and at uni he meets his first love um and some class prejudice issues and i'd say tonally this film it sort of sits somewhere between um august osage county the tracy let's play which was made into a pretty good film very uh kind of the cervic uh like family drama and then a mix with the kind of dawn glow sentimentality of this is us from tv but the thing about this is us is it kind of perfected the formula of depicting real life as something mythic and a a series of endless poetic lessons um but it also had drama and incident and the problem with this film is that the conflicts is, is just too inconsequential to have any impact and their character exchanges are just too neat and tidy to really mirror real life. So you've got this combination of like really 
inconsequential drama and very neat conversations and it makes the film feel very slight and undynamic it's sort of comfort viewing i suppose and i think perhaps george clooney's period pieces are always that to an extent um but this is it's like painfully nostalgic in general there are some quite amusing moments but they're very very occasional um like I, I did like the bit where JR meets his father who's in denial about being an alcoholic and, and he says he's going to order a cocktail and he just literally orders a straight scotch and that's his cocktail. Um, so, But, you know, they're fleeting moments like I might say my memory of this film. But uh, yeah, so, so JR he wants to be a writer. He goes through the motions of wanting to become a novelist and then he wants to become a journalist. And everyone keeps saying to him, this is repeated mantra, the money is in memoirs. And that's sort of meant to be the final punchline because basically he's gone, he goes through all this stuff, ups and downs and that. And then, of course, in at the end of that, it's like, oh, I'm going to write my memoir about my early life. As if what we've just seen is sort of extraordinary or worthy of you know a note a, yeah worthy of a, a, a autobiography and it's like well he's it's pretty unremarkable his life really i mean there's some drinking he's unlucky in love he's got one bad parent one good parent he's made redundant at one point he's not really sure what he wants to do as a young man but to be honest it's not worthy of like i would not read that book it doesn't sound interesting and it's not a particularly engaging film despite the good performances from our boy Ty and Affleck and I, the lovely production design. It's not enough. It's just not enough drama in there. Oh, that's a shame. I, mm. I, I, I wonder if this is why I've been hovering because, I mean, I, mean, I really like Ben Affleck. Um, right. I, and, and yeah, Ty Sheridan obviously is a keeper, but and directed by George Clooney, but then made, the last film by George Clooney was problematic for me and i think that's what's been holding me back i think if i didn't know if it was directed by george clooney i'd i'd leap into it a bit quicker is it um, the monuments men or is that no no no, no I, I actually enjoyed that um yeah. the, the, the one the one in space oh the one you, the one in the arctic or whatever it was is that him i don't know the one, no. the one in think, space I'm thinking of the one where he's like got a beard and he's hanging around in the Arctic because everyone else is buggered off. Yeah, and then is and then a, a little girl rocks up. Yes. Yeah, what's that called? Can't remember. Midnight something. <laughs> Express. Okay. Run. Midnight run. <laughs> um, um, mm. R.I.P. Charles Grodin. But yeah, this just exactly that's, yeah. that's just what I mean. It's that we can't even remember the title of it. That's just so. So <laughs> yeah. So I just thought George Clooney. I'm okay. Um, yeah. Midnight. Yeah, I can't remember. But uh, I, I think I will watch it. Um, is there a scene in it where Ben Affleck is like wiping down the bar and Ty Sheridan is sitting there waiting for inspiration, and Ben Affleck sort of folds his arms and leans over to him, puts his mouth really close to his ear, and says. You know, in a world of over seven billion people, they chose me to be Batman. And, and Ty Sheridan just goes, I'll just pop that down, Unc. Um, a slight change of pace here. I watched a film, yes, on Amazon Prime called The Stranger, starring Kathy Long, who is a, um, a stunt woman uh, come actor. And I think this was supposed to be 
you know, a, a, a sort of Cynthia Rothrock-esque, uh, you know, like hot woman kicks ass sort of film. Obviously, Danny Trejo's in it, as is the porn star Ginger Lynn and our boy Andrew Divoff. <laughs> so there's a lot of gold there, Rupert. But what the film actually boils down to is her turning up at this town, almost in a mythical way as well, by the way. It's a really bizarre opening because she, she's she got a, like a, a big like Harley Davidson motorbike and she's pumping the gas into it. And someone looks at her through traffic, two lanes of traffic. And every now and again, she'll just disappear and then come back like she's a ghost or something. A ghost putting petrol into a vehicle. And then... And I thought that's really bizarre. So it's it's almost like she's mythically turned up at this town. And I went online on IMDb, and it is actually a ghost town. It's like you know, the, like you, the old Wild West, even though it's set in the nineties. Um, like one, you know, one street sort of thing, and then in and out job. Yeah. Um. So she rocks up this town, and she and the, every time a man says, "Oh, you're you're you know you're pretty," in in whatever fiendish way he says it, she just beats him up. And she's obviously a very capable martial artist, which is cool. Um. The film is completely bland, drab, and of no real note, um, apart from two things. And this is, oh, this is all I wanted to bring up about this film. Um, one is uh, at the end of the film when she – this is totally spoilertastic. You don't know why she's there. People keep asking her, why are you here beating everyone up, by the way? And she just never answers them. At the end of the film – uh, when she sort of gets hold of Andrew Divoff, Angel, who leads this this rebel motorcycle gang, it turns out that they gang raped her a few years ago uh, when she was like a prostitute and she left and now she's come back for revenge. But nice. this film is like this cheap knockoff, um, you know, martial arts film, like really, really bright and TV movie-ish. And when she's beating up Andrew Divoff, it inter- it's intercut with a, like quite a brutal rape sequence um, mm-hmm. in, in a really horrible way. Like it's sort of, half speed you know the one of the like a death wish two sort of rape sequence where Mm. everyone's like laughing and it's really uncomfortable because you think this this is supposed to be like a silly action film so that was odd the second part is much more light-hearted because there's the girl who kind of acts as a a newt like character like you know from aliens so she's scuttling Mm. around watching a cast and she's hungry and she's parents have abandoned her and eventually kathy long finds her in um in this house at the the head of the town this abandoned house and you know this little girl says oh i see everything i know it comes in and comes out and kathy long says to her look i'll look after you i'm gonna go away now she goes off to look for andrew divoff she says but you take this and you just call me and no matter where i am i'll come for you and she gives her a 1995 flip phone and the little girl sort of looks at her and frowns slightly as I would have puts her in her pocket and she says really and Kathy Long says yes I'll always be there for you and I said out loud to myself it is 1995 this is filmed in the like Nevada desert or whatever it is there is nary a (laughs) nary a telephone pole as far as the eye can see she hasn't given you a charger so you will try to ring her and the phone will either be dead or on low battery and no signal. And about 15 minutes later, this little girl sees Andrew Divoff and his gang returning to the to mm-hmm. the town. And she takes the phone of her pocket and flips it open and she looks at the screen and she sort of furrows her brow. And then it cuts to a point of view shot. And on the tiny phone screen, it's flashing 
low battery, no signal, <laughs> and she can't get hold of it. And I thought, good, because I didn't expect that level of realism. Yeah, <laughs> in attention to detail. Yeah, so um, that was the highlight of the film. Uh, so, yeah, absolutely worth a watch. It sounds brilliant just for that scene. <laughs> That's it. It was it generally was. I was so pleased with that sequence. Okay, so what's that called again? The Stranger. That's The Stranger starring Kathy Long, Danny Trejo, and Andrew Diver from 1995, straight to Prime. Of course it is. Um, the Lost Daughter is on Netflix currently. This is a new film. It's a psychological drama. It's Maggie Gyllenhaal's directorial debut. Okay. Uh, based on a novel by Elena Ferranti. Uh, it stars Olivia Coleman. Uh, and she arrives in this idyllic Greek seaside village for a kind of getaway. She's welcomed by none other than Ed Harris. She's loving the peace and tranquility. And then this huge, rowdy Greek-American family show up. And they include this mother, played by Dakota Johnson, and her daughter, with whom Olivia Coleman becomes weirdly fascinated. Um, because a lot of what Olivia Coleman's character sees in... Uh, Dakota Johnson's character reminds her of her own experience with her kids um and but of course what Dakota Johnson she has to deal with live with all this living amongst this bawdy grotesque family who may or may not be terrorizing Olivia Coleman uh and in flashbacks we see Olivia's character who's played by Jesse Buckley in the flashbacks uh with her daughters and we see that she's clearly struggling to be a parent basically and struggling with her partner and we see the story of what happens to the family and which may explain why years later Olivia Common is now middle-aged on holiday on her own having a breakdown and possibly just terrorizing herself um about her own maternal guilt so yeah it's very much a character piece it's a it's an actor's film definitely and the performances are all good especially Olivia Coleman like she's yeah the like she's just a very detailed performer and her character is very flawed and frankly quite unlikable for a lot of it and her performance keeps it compelling just about even when the film just becomes absurdly depressing towards the end this is one of those small art house movies that really wallows in the minutiae of misery and to be fair, I mean, it is shot through the eyes of someone who's basically incapable of happiness because of her past, but it is really hard going and not exactly universal subject matter. It must be said, I suppose it is a, a film about being consumed by regret and I would say the importance of the virtue of patience as a parent, because that seems to be the key thing that she didn't have as a parent. But anyway, I found it pretty hard going. And it seems to have a plot and characterization, an attitude to character, really, it, that bends over backwards to maximise the misery, which feels a bit disingenuous. But um, I would say that if you're in the mood for something dark and serious and you just want to see a, a really good central performance, it's worth it. But it's, yeah, I found it pretty rough, to be honest. It's, is, is it's it in the, not life I, a minute. 
I can, I can, I, I'll tie this in with something I wasn't going to talk about. But you're talking about a, a key central performance. Um, if I can, there, there was uh, my brother came over and we watched a few. My brother Transvaal, and um, he fell asleep in the middle of this film, and I chucked it on just because we just finished watching Dead Heat, and uh, it was cue the Winged Serpent. Oh yeah, uh, I, I know it. Yeah. Have you have you seen this? Yes. And I was watching it, right? And, and this is just just as a as a sort no, of tie-in. Michael Moriarty in it. This is the thing, right? I kind of recognise his face. It's, it, it says on on Prime, oh, stars David Carradine. It does not. He is in it. Um, but but what I wanted to say, all I the, all the notes I've written down for this film, and it ties in really nicely with what you've just said about Olivia Coleman is. I was watching the film, and bearing in mind, this is a. I thought this was like a horror film, like a mythological horror, like fantasy horror. I turned on, expecting to see David Carradine, like just like fighting monsters. And it's set in the 1982, then modern New York, a really dirty pre-cleanup New York. Good, yes. so you love it. And it's just them trying to solve this preposterous mystery. Richard Roundtree in it as well. Good, uh, of of how this like massive, massive demon. Is just like just snatching people off rooftops, and I thought this thing is like two hundred feet. Like you would just and and there's a bit in it where David Carradine says the reason people can't see it is because it's clever when it flies in line with the sun. So when people look up, they're blinded. And I thought, yeah, but other people aren't going to be directly below it, and they're going to look up and see it, aren't they? I look up when I can get a helicopter, for example. Um. So anyway, but my point is. Michael Moriarty in that film is absolutely amazing. And what's really, really, really clever about it is he's introduced as sort of a sub-character as part yeah. of like a, a driver in a, in a to like a bank heist. And in, even the other people in the heist are like fobbing him off as this kind of like weaselly, neurotic, bumbling, pathetic character. And then you realise over like the first half hour or so, he's actually like, the, he, he sort of takes over the film. And... Yes. I absolutely loved it. I was really surprised by how everything else gets pushed to the side because he finds out where the nest is and he's just trying to see how much he can get from like the, the like money and how much fame he can get before he tells them where it is. And he's just really smug about it. And I've never seen a performance like it. He's because usually in films actually ties in with what we just talked about, Michael Angarano, um, where he's weaseling to the point you just think, oh, just fuck off. You're really pissing me off now, which is good. They're doing the job right. But Michael Moriarty in this film was just. He's so pathetic. So fu- he's so funny, he's though. So pathetic, and he's so like, oh yeah, I can, oh yeah, I'm the big man now, and <laughs> and it's like, and he's like pulling pulling at his trousers and his suit and like twitching, and you think, oh god, you're so awkward. Um, I was entranced by his performance in that. So yeah, if you're up for a good performance, watch Michael Moriarty in uh, in Cue the Winged Serpent. Cue the Wing- yeah, and of course this that was a Larry Cohen film, and and they re um uh, they reconvened for the stuff a couple of years later. Um. Which, which is another classic. Which is another classic. And again, Michael Moriarty's performance. Again, it's another film which would be probably pretty ordinary were it not for that central performance. Like, yeah. Massively elevating it. So, yes, he's a special performer. I, I need to really hunt down more films of his because he's clearly he's clearly a Stephen Lang. Like, yeah, he probably hasn't Elevates. had the most uh, illustrious career, but... I bet he's been in a bunch of stuff and he's the best thing in everything he's in. It seems like he's um, big on the Savalas. I think he's been in a lot of shows oh, that ran for 400 billion years. Um, but yeah, Michael Moran need to look into and also Jeff Wincott, which we'll get around to. Now, Rupert, we come to the centerpiece of this episode. Okay. And that is the first of two Godfrey Ho films that I watched. And this is, do you know what? I don't even know what the title is. 
my, my brother rocked up with it and just threw it on the floor and said, there you go, and disappeared in a puff of Pat Narita smoke. Um, it, on, on IMDb, it says Revenge of the Drunken Master, but on the picture on IMDb of the cover of the movie, it just says Revenge of the Drunken Master. So who knows? Who knows? Um, this, I'm not even going to try to explain the plot other than to say it's, you see someone at the start who is he's got ridiculous hair and he is in the middle of a forest and he's absolutely battered and he's just like rolling around and i am assuming it's the basis for i've forgotten the character's name uh the old bloke who fights in virtual fighter 2 with that kind of drunken style if you know what i mean oh yeah yeah he's drinking swigging out the bottle and stuff so it's that sort of thing but he's quite a young guy and he's just bumbling around right. just, just like really raucously drunk by himself in the middle of the day and then a load of a load of like ninjas come down the blood ninja gangsters like about 40 of them jump out of the trees and surround him and he's just like giggling at them and they say we're here to defeat your drunken master and then he says how do you know i'm the drunken master and then they say you're drunk and he says yes i am <laughs> and then they fight and he wins um, you're that, drunk and you're displaying mastery um, that, that initial two minutes sums up effectively the synopsis on the back of the dvd case because the rest of the film takes a turn so yeah it's it, but just i'm just gonna say well i'm, I'm not gonna there's no point with godfrey hall films talking about like the plot i'm just gonna read out some highlights right <clears throat> and this bearing in mind godfrey hall films oh, they always take up my time with these blinking notes i tell you what Obviously, everything is dubbed, and apart from the main character, everyone else is from Norfolk or Northumberland. Apart apart from the main bad guy's sort of um, weirdly sort of, um, I don't know, he's almost like a subservient sort of pseudo-sexual assistant who for some reason talks like Blakey from On the Buses. Um, he's like, oh, what do you think? And he's like, what? what? This is like, this is like Japan in the fourth century. Um, the fight sequences are quite cohesive. There's a sequence in it where a traveling swordsman says that is uh, like going around just like um, beating up bat, what he sees as bad people. And he says, I'm here to like defend the good and kill the kill the bad. I'm a cop. I don't think they would have used the word cop in the fourth century feudal Japan, but there you go. Um, and uh, and then he he just saying that he beats up a lot of people who have kidnapped a woman uh, to sell her, and then he drags her off, ties her to a tree stump, and rapes her. But but don't worry because uh, she just falls in love with him, falls in love with him after the rape, and okay. then and it's okay. like then, then it's like a knockabout comedy about him trying to tell her to bug her off. There's some framing in this film which is unbelievable. Um, What's going on? So he rapes her, she falls in love with him, and then he continues to mistreat her afterwards. Yeah, and like in a like, oh, bloody hell, here she is, you're in those sort of thing, as if they've been married for oh. decades in a really loveless marriage. Okay. Um, there is, yeah, so, so that happens. Um, there's a scene where the main character is just traveling through the woods. I assume it's all filmed in a single forest. And he goes to, he finds this sort of temple and then this sort of vampiric ghost raises up out of the sarcophagus and they get into a fight. And it turns out it's just a man pretending to be a vampiric ghost, uh, also from Norfolk. Uh, and then he beats him up. And then the other guy who ripped the woman turns up and the same sequence just happens again. Uh, and wow. and then they, they just leave and you're like, okay, don't really know why he was there. Um, 
there's a sequence where they beat the main bad guy's forces and then about three or four minutes of just dialogue happens in the film, you know, like the same area. And then they look at the gates of the village and the same bad guy comes through again and says, right, you're not going to beat me this time. I have gathered the most fierce and greatest warriors from around the world this time. And I thought, what, <laughs> in five minutes of walking out of the gate? Um but all of this leads up to the end sequence, Rupert, which my brother maintains is the best ending sequence to a film he's ever seen, where um, it, it boils down to the main bad guy. Suddenly, it's almost like Godfrey O said, right, pause for a second. This film isn't Godfrey Ho enough. I'm going to I'm going to write this last sequence. OK, so the main bad guy suddenly pulls out two hi hats from a drum kit and attaches them to scarves and can control them with his mind. So there's an mm. extended sequence of him throwing drum cymbals at the, the two guys, the the, the rapist and the um, drunken master. And they're getting their asses kicked by these cymbals. The Blakey from on the buses just scuttles off into the woods, never to be seen again at this point. Um, and then, but they get around this, Rupert. Mm. <laughs> but by the drunken master lying on the floor, lifting his top up, and the rapist just thrusting his finger into his belly, into the guy's belly button, like really far. And then they Ooh. both sort of, they both vibrate for ages. And, <laughs> and then, and then. Like in scanners. Yeah, except, but with no like visual effects at all. No, so they literally just vibrate with their eyes rolling back and around. And then the guy who was the rapist just like jumps off scene. And the drunken master just stands up and just puffs his, like leans back. And puffs his face out like he's pretending to be fat and just stands there still while the other guy gives the main manga gives up on his symbols and just punches him repeatedly on the cock uh, for, <laughs> a, for ages. Um, as But as if the guy's fighting back, if you know what I mean, like moving around as if he's deflecting blows. And then eventually the drunken master uppercuts the bad guy into the air. And as the bad guy lands, the rapist pushes a coffin underneath him, slams the lid on it, and it just says the end. Wow. That's astonishing. It is. Weirdly, it's the most coherent film by Godfrey Ho we've seen yet because it appears to be made of footage from one film. Okay. Yeah. But, and, and like one shot follows another in a coherent manner, basically. Ish. Yeah, right, okay. I mean, there's a sequence where the drunken master loses his way and he goes off to, um, like, sort of find like another drunken master to teal him, and he and he goes into a cave and there's a bloke just under a load of leaves, and they both lie under a pile of leaves and they talk about wind, and then suddenly he's a better fighter. Okay. Good. Maybe that's what happens when you drink loads. <laughs> so yeah, it's uh, absolutely must watch: Revenge of the Drunken Master or Revenge of Drunken Master. Was there another Godfrey Ho film? Do you want me to go straight into that? I can do that. That's Mr. Well. X. I mean, look, let's keep in the let's keep in the vibe. This is Mr. X. This is 1995, and this was the last film, as, as far as I'm aware, that he directed because we were we were intrigued to see if he had improved. I mean, Revenge of a Drunken Master was 1984. We've talked about films from the early nine, uh, the early 80s. This was like you know the last film he directed. And I think you'll particularly appreciate this one because I actually sent you a clip of this, didn't I? Um, where, yes, you did. I did appreciate that. Um, the problem with this is, so again, these are just points because I, the plot is a hitman is hired 
to hunt down a load of I don't know, like the Yakuza or the Chinese Mafia, whatever it is, the triads, but it wasn't but clear from the it, it's clip not you sent clear. me who it's not it's who, not clear if, yeah, go on. Yeah. Who wants to kill whom and what his act <laughs> what his actual mission is. It's not clear from the very sequence that is there to explain what's happening. Um so this is Mr. X mid nineties. Now this is footage put together Frankenstein together from three different films. But the problem obviously that Godfrey has got here and that we certainly have as viewers is that this is the mid nineties. So this is like the crossover from VHS to DVD. So whereas in the past it's cut in between maybe Kung Fu films from different countries or whatever. Now, when it cuts between films, one is on VHS, one may be on like film and one may be on DVD. So it cuts and the, the, the sort of, uh, aspect ratio changes, the quality changes, and the frame rate changes. So it's very, it's very clear. It's very clear when there's a change between the films. Um, Joe Lewis, I say stars in this. Um, he shoots someone at the start. He sits in a hotel room as someone explains the plot to him, and then he pops out at the end to shoot someone in the face to end the movie. But there's just a lot of moments in this where it will cut to another film. I assume it's a Japanese film of people working their way up a skyscraper at night, just just constantly shooting machine guns and never reloading. Um, and then it, at the, the only way that ties into the main film is at the end of the film when Joe Lewis just pops up and just fires one shot. We never see it who. And then it cuts back to the main plot. And it's like, oh, thanks for doing that. Thanks for killing that bloke. Um. <laughs> so yeah joe lewis is apparently if you look him up he is a like a world-class martial artist but in this film i literally thought he was someone's dad because his fight sequences are so bad there's a sequence where he goes up to it looks like a top of a building to tie it in with the other film and he beats someone up and then he turns around and walks up to the helipad and gets in a really long clumsy fight with someone only to walk back down and go through the door that he he had kind of freed up earlier on for the final sequence. Got Godfrey Ho cameos in this film. And he is, it appears to be some sort of like um, foreman on a construction site. And, and he's holding a bit of paper. And my brother said, if he says, this is a script, do you know what Richard Harrison would give to have a look at this? Is a moment that will live with me to my grave. Um, yeah, so he turns up and the the two main characters have a chat with him. And then they turn around and because the whole film is dubbed, they have a conversation with someone on a construction site. It cuts to them still on a construction site. And one of them says, I've been thinking back to what you said when we were on that construction site. And I thought, well, I wouldn't get too far ahead of yourself because you're still there. Um, yeah, so the whole, the whole film... The whole film is absolutely bewildering, quite frankly. I'm not um, surprised the ending is incomprehensible because even the clip you sent me, which bear in mind is two men sitting side by side on a sofa. It's all you have to do. It's all you have to. Even that, because of the terrible, well, terrible script, but also the, the terrible blocking and framing and editing, it manages to overcomplicate what should just be shot reverse shot he, he manages to 
get all that wrong. So there'll be a shot of someone, and then the other person, the other individual's like arm will come into the frame and slightly block them out. Is that what? What's happening? Why did that happen? And and that's the sequence as well where they they they're just naming names. And yeah. It's just cutting the black and white names. Like just oh you know Jeff is you know the boss of Peter, and then there's a bit at the end of that sequence where he just points at the telly and says oh, I'll kill him as well because he gets on my nerves. Yeah, it's, neat, it's like slightly <laughs> racist as well. Yeah, so it's, it's like, like I don't he, like him because he's foreign. No, he's oh, come on, Rupert. He says and kill him as well. He's a slanty-eyed toad. Shoot one up his yin yang. Oh yes, sorry. <laughs> Bear in mind, this is a film like written and directed by an Asian man. So, but yeah, you think you'd be more sensitive to these things. Um, yeah, and in that sequence as well, the main Joe Lewis is openly just reading his lines off a notebook he's holding under the guise that it's um, a list of people he's supposed to kill. It's clearly just his script. Um, there's a sequence in this film as well where it cuts to him meeting some bloke in a cemetery and someone gives him a book and he says. He gives him books. Says, oh, I've got a gift for you, and he says, oh, "I've I've read that." It gives it back to him. Yeah, it just cuts back to the film then. <laughs> so it has no, it's no relevance to anything. Don't worry. By this point, you're so worn out of any <laughs> any relevance. It's just footage that's there, and you just have to appreciate it for what it is. Yeah, it's not put me off him, but it it was just slightly. I don't know. I don't know what the word is. It's an emotion I've never felt to to feel that after a thirty year career. He hasn't improved in any perceivable way. Sorry, we're we talking about Albert Pean now. <laughs> Although, no, but Albert Pean's different because he's actively got worse. Yeah, whereas Godfrey Ho is is, is it's he's just maintained yeah, a level. It's maintained the level of the level of class that he has set out with. Yeah. So um. So yeah. Uh. Yeah. Revenge of the Drunken Master and Mister X. Well, keystones in Godfrio's career as are all of his movies I've still not seen one that I've not been entertained by I have to say that he's consistent in that regard you've probably already seen bits of his other films anyway in those films <laughs> like it's some sort of tapestry like if yeah. I just took a step back they would all seed together and, and make it make a portrait in my mind do you think it's possible uh, that he he's, he's pretty prolific, prolific isn't he so he, he's he has directed a lot of films, right? 150, yeah. Do you think it's conceivable that genuinely he f- filmed a load of stuff, right? A load of footage. And he's just got really, really bad um, like record keeping. And he genuinely like lost track of what footage belongs in what film. And so he ended up just thinking, well, I better use it. And so he that's why he's kind of like just inserting shots into different movies because it's like I can't quite remember what this one's from. He's just yeah. I no one's labelled it. I, I will, it genuinely I, sounds like that. I will say that if you imagine if you've got like um say you've got twelve hours of footage, right, from three or four different films from different countries and probably mm. sometimes even different genres of movie. And then you, you you've got twelve so you go in the editing room and you've got twelve hours and you're like, I have to make a like a relatively coherent film from this. Um yeah. So then the only way you can, of course, tie them together is by just dubbing ridiculous dialogue. So like the next scene will kind of make sense. Um, uh, For instance, in Mr. X, there's a sequence where Joe Lewis, you see this extended um, sequence where he creeps into this house and like sort of walks around really gingerly and goes into a cupboard and hides in the cupboard. Mm. And then 15 minutes later, it cuts back to him and he gets out of the cupboard and just creeps out of the house. And nothing Mm. happens. So... You imagine you've got all this footage and, and how you'd have to edit all the dialogue together for it to make some sort of sense. There's, there's a skill there that Godfrey Ho doesn't possess. 
<laughs> but it, it's it is it's intriguing because, like I said, we watched that film the other day, Ninja Terminator, wherever, where it just zooms in on a man in a boat laughing and eating a biscuit in the in the corner of like the the boiler room. You think, like, when this got to the producers, when they thought, yep, get it in cinemas, or or not, whatever the case may be. Um, it, yeah, it is. It, I'm still in, I'm still enthralled by his career. I'm still. And I know my brother's got a shelf full of gold for us to watch, so I'm I'm always yeah. going to want more of Godfrey Ho because, you know, it, it's good podcast fodder. But you're watching it thinking, you didn't just do this for a couple of films as a student and get away with it. Like you made a career out of this. <laughs> well, he clearly has his fans, <laughs> and I'm one of them. <laughs> and you are the one. <laughs> my brother's uh, the other one. Yes. Them? <laughs> um. Okay. So, but they're not on like Prime or anything, are they? No, no, we we bought these on DVD. Yeah, well, my brother bought them on DVD, so yeah, they're they're not anyway. I think he's got one film on Prime. Um, <laughs> Just as like a taster, right? Um, okay, I I'm going to switch over to Netflix and talk okay. about the Unforgivable. Okay. Uh, which is a new movie with Sandra Bullock, um, based on an ITV drama from about okay. ten years ago. Uh, so Sandra Bullock, she plays Ruth Slater. Who she she's on parole from prison, and she goes straight to this grim halfway house. Uh, now her little sister is now grown up, having been adopted when they were separated. So in flashbacks, we gradually learn that Sandra Bullock's character, when they were young, she defended her sister from being taken away violently. And basically now it's a character-driven story about uh, Sandra Bullock's character trying to make her way in the world after doing something unforgivable, that is, killing a policeman. So she's getting back on her feet and possibly, hopefully, reconnecting with her sister, because there's unfinished business there. Uh, Now she returns to her old home where this violent incident occurred, and it happens that the new owner is an attorney, Played by Vincent D'Onofrio, of course, who may be able to help her reconnect with her sister. Um, meanwhile, subplot alert: the son of the dead cop who she killed as a youngster is tracking her down for revenge. And that whole subplot just sucks, frankly. It's really poorly written and unconvincing. It's like it's a different movie, and the film goes. To, it takes the film into a completely absurd place. And ultimately just drags the whole thing down. So on it, it would appear that this is one of those like no makeup issue movies that um actors like slumming it in. But secretly it's also a very silly and contrived nineties thriller in Wolf's clothing. And it's kind of sensitively directed and acted. It's it's tasteful, I'd call it. Um and the depiction of Sandra Bullock's character, like, adjusting to life outside prison is quite interesting. Like, the use of sound and editing to kind of, like, mirror the way that she feels really overwhelmed. And I I think some parts of it ring true, like, the way that any act of even moderate kindness, she just can't believe that they'd actually be kind enough to do anything for her sort of thing. Uh, so that's pretty cool and it's a good performance by Sandra Bullock it's very ter- internalised but there are there's a lot of dud scenes in the film you know like uh, well like the, 
it's like the big showdowns between the characters just feel like they feel like movie moments they don't feel real or raw or anything and i think it's it's like a contrive a contrivance that i'd say is born of its agenda because we know from the very start you know that we're going to be moved to empathize or possibly even sympathize with this lady's plight so all the plot moves are predictable and kind of schmaltzy um however much they want to make her look rough you know that you're going to end up sort of on her side sort of thing so it's very predictable in that way and and then there's this twist which is just the cherry on the cake of this whole very concocted and manipulative film and it and it is a big one big manipulative exercise the whole thing and no amount of like doom laden music can convince me it is any more than that and it has this stupid unearned ending where uh it kind of twists it round so she gets to be the hero even though she brought it all on herself it's one of those twists sort of thing she puts herself in a position in a dangerous position uh and manages to heroically fight her way out of it and it's like well but it didn't have to happen in the first place did it so it's one of them so it's a it's very convoluted film uh doesn't know whether it wants to be like a social social realist drama or a trashy 90s thriller it's technically it's fine but uh, it's like it's the weighty existential drama sheen it has i don't believe it for a second i would I, rather it was just filmed as and presented as uh uh like yeah like a trashy thriller that would have been more enjoyable the the problem i've got as well because i actually saw this advertised on netflix and, and generally mm. i i like i think the fact that sandra bullock has had michael burke clive done to the point that now it's it's distracting me when I see her in things. Um, so yeah, that's what. Because she looks off. a bit like Michael Jackson now. Yeah, I didn't want to say it, but yeah, it, it was that. I mean, there was a touch of that in the heat. Um, but yeah, yeah I suppose yeah. I mean, in the in the heat, that's you know, there's no, it's not aiming for any kind of realism. But in this, it's definitely going to be like, oh, this is just a regular woman who frankly spent most of her life in prison, probably didn't get an opportunity to get any cosmetic surgery, a lot of plastic surgery done while she was there. So, yeah, doesn't really ring true. Can I really quickly talk about Geostorm, just certain points of it? Please do. Because I I watched this and uh, I I was not often in the mood for big disaster movies, but yeah, just to sum it up, uh, uh, what's his name? Gerard Butler is the, is miscast quite frankly, as, the designer of this climate controlling satellite called Dutch Boy. Um, because the Earth is through mistreatment uh, from us, it's hurtling towards doom. And he, he creates this thing which basically controls the weather and keeps everything all groovy. Uh, he gets kicked off it. And then when things start to go awry later on, he gets sent up into space to sort it out, which is effectively the plot. But I, like that's fine. That That's the plot. What I want to talk about is Jim Sturgis cast as his brother. Oh, by the way, the way that it reveals that Jim Sturgis' his brother can just fuck off. Um, I just want to, <laughs> want to say that. It's such a, a looking at the camera, eyebrow raising, oh, you didn't expect that, did you, viewers? Um, 
But Jim Sturgis in this film is distractingly bad. And I've never seen him, or I'm not aware that I've seen him in anything else. He cannot act um, <laughs> like unless it's like he's on stage, if you know what I mean. Yes. It's, he's constantly every, he's supposed to be like a member of, um, a member of parliament, then he's a member of Congress. And he is just constantly, he can't have a conversation without going up to someone and conspiratorially whispering with them or shuffling on his feet or like stepping back and forth and like raising and lowering his voice. Like he's like scenery chewing in, in like an Amdram production and it gets really distracting. And the other sequence that I thought, yeah, is how these two brothers are sort of separated from, you know, from, from him having Gerard Butler kicked off the project. And yet when Gerard Butler just sends him a message from space, Jim Stur just turns to um, turns to his assistant and says, "That is code used from <laughs> when we were children, and mm. it's every eighth word is actually what your, you know, what actually spells out the message." And then they go back down, they take the footage from what Gerard Butler has said, put it through editing software, and like work up the actual hidden code. I don't believe that. That is a plot point that I do not believe. And finally, and this is spoiler-tastic, but honestly, this this isn't a film about spoilers. There's a point in the film where there's such a sense of urgency to find out who's sabotaging Dutch Boy, this this like network of of uh, international satellites that regulate the entire world's like temperatures and um and weather systems. They say if Dutch Boy goes down for even an hour, the results would be absolutely catastrophic fast forward to the end of the film when it explodes into smithereens and text comes up that says two years later mm. and and then Gerard Butler is up there again like running the whole system because it's been rebuilt nary nary <laughs> a car crash on the earth below um, yeah, it's it's preposterous. Like I would love to be like um like a climate scientist watching this or something, but just just as like an you can't even put it on the background and like half watch it because you just think what like every every character motivation is totally preposterous. Um, yep. it, like every conversation's ridiculous, and because of Jim Sturgis, every frame that he's in the movie is ridiculous. Can he act? Have you seen him in anything else? The only other thing I've seen him in. And I saw him in London Fields, um, where he played a very over-the-top character. And I watched him in Cloud Atlas, where he plays numerous over-the-top characters. But those two films were kind of comic booky anyway, so I figured he was just playing along with the... I suppose he fitted the tone of the film a bit more. And I suppose you could say in something like Geostorm, I mean, because I watched this pretty recently, but I really don't remember much about it. I remember being bad and the science being bad. But um, I, you know, I suppose the fact that he stands out as being over the top and theatrical in a film like Geostorm, (laughs) directed by Roland Emmerich. Yeah. With Gerard Butler in the lead role, says something about his performance, doesn't it? But then I suppose... Uh, maybe it's just that he doesn't nail the tone because it can happen, can't it? Like you'll get certain actors who aren't quite on board. Like, like sometimes you get like an ensemble cast and you can tell everyone's singing from the same hymn sheet. If you like, they know 
they understand what they're trying to achieve here and they they get it but when there's that one actor who seems to be acting in a different movie yeah it can be very distracting a look at you robert darvia maniac cop too no because in this i realize that like Gerard butler's obviously miscast but because in all of his films he just kind of throws himself at the screen it, yeah. it's, it just sort of works like it's just this like well he's just shouting at things, it's this car- that's what car- he does yeah this cartoonish intensity fine and then you've got jim sturgis like almost like like he's about to start a boxing match that's unmiked so he's like like nodding in and whispering and then bouncing back looking around and his hair's right. like eight is his fringe is like asymmetrical and then it's like a tiny mullet at the back and um yeah just going up to people as well and saying oh can you do me a favor for no real reason they've got no real reason to help him and it throws their entire career in jeopardy and they just do it absolutely just do it when i just say can you go away and get a haircut and stop like breathing on me and dancing when you talk but no one seems to say that to Jim Sturgis in this film or indeed in any of his films uh, um, yeah okay yeah Geostorm it was not good and well if it helps you've now watched it recently and I watched it maybe two months ago and I mm-hmm. remember nothing about it so you've got that to look forward to remembering <sighs> nothing in a couple of months there you go um I will talk now about This isn't mother. the best dementia clinic I've been to, Doctor. <laughs> um, I'm going to talk about Mother slash Android um, on Netflix, which is a terrible title. I just, honestly, I thought you'd adopted two dogs. <laughs> I, I, well, it's just one dog. I just couldn't choose the name. Um, <laughs> mother slash Android foods, baby. <laughs> yeah, so I just gave it both, but kept the slash. <laughs> Um, so this is from director Matson Tomlin, who wrote Project Power a while back, but now making his directorial debut. Was that the uh, Anthony Mackie film? I think so. I, I never yeah. bothered watching it. Um, I did. I liked it. Yeah? Yeah, yeah okay. I did mind that. I remember you liking it, actually. And so this is set in the near future, and basically it starts off with it shows a future where like very human like android butlers work in homes in people's homes uh chloe grace moretz young woman she finds out she's pregnant uh and uh tells her boyfriend it's not good news anyway she's they're struggling with it anyway during this whole thing the androids suddenly start going nuts and they just start killing people everywhere like it's a bit like the opening uh, i don't know if you've played the game the last of us but at the start of that game it's like a very like sleepy neighborhood and then it just everything goes crazy and, it, and you know so it's kind of like that but with budget restraints here i kind of like how it affects everything like so it's not just androids going crazy but people like it affects people's phones and they just get their faces blown off by their own phones so that was quite amusing Anyway, cut to a few months later and Chloe Grace Moretz and her boyfriend are living in the wild, hacking their way across the country. She's now nine months pregnant. They go to uh, this human camp. They're trying to get to Boston to try and get a boat to Asia and to safety um, because boats are taking mums and children under a year old. So there's this basic quandary in it. Do they stay at the camp and give birth there and then try to reach Boston? 
with a newborn or do they rush to Boston before the baby is born? So there's, it's sort of like that kind of quandary about it. Now, another shit happens in the way, but neither the of the main actors can really act that well, but they're really hobbled by bad script where they'll have arguments and she'll say something like, I'm allowed to have emotions. And it's like, no, that doesn't. Would you really say that? Would anyone say that? Anyway, so it gets really eye-rolly halfway through this film when a, this, this scientist, a scientist, bear in mind, that humans' greatest weakness is their capacity to love, and that's why the androids are winning. It's really like sub-Disney-level stuff. There's a really mm. dumb scene, which could have been brilliant, where she's wandering around this house wearing an invisibility suit so that droids can't see her. Oh, she's Pat Morita. Right, carry on. Yeah. Uh, so she's creeping around this house, and she keeps, like, like she's creeping around this house with all these androids walking around who can't see her but could potentially hear her or bump into her. And she keeps just, like, covering her mouth in shock and walking backwards into rooms. It's just... Stop doing that. It, and the problem is with things like that, it's like not established up front how much the droids can like hear or smell or whatever. So it. So there's no it, threat there. No, there's no threat. You don't know what the threat is. And then anyway, that whole scene is just rendered redundant straight afterwards, pretty much by ridiculous twists. So so there's a bit of a, a bit of children and men in this film, a bit of the road. But that opened up in my mind this observation that Children of Men was not, it wasn't just a technical kind of breakthrough, but it was also very like humorous. Um, I had like a, a sense of humor to it. And at the other end of the scale, the road was so utterly grim uh, and so like committed to its grimness that it was compelling in that way. But the problem with Mother Android is it doesn't really commit either way. It's like really hokey and cliched without the saving grace of any comedy. But it's also too palatable and mainstream and frankly Netflixy to dare to commit to being really dark. So it just plays it all a bit safe. So it's a, like a post a safe post-apocalyptic movie. Um and it's in it, it it's it's drama seems to it thrives on the sort of like simplistic moral quandaries that don't that don't really challenge or provoke you. It just it's just a continuous slide, inexorable slide into sentimentality. And so it's just boring and then sentimental. The other problem is characterization, because for a lot of the film, she, Grace Moretz's character, just comes across as a disapproving wife and he comes across as this emasculated trier who can't do anything right. And it's like, fine, but it's not a very interesting dynamic when this is what we've got to watch. It's slightly like, like these um, slightly passive aggressive um, boyfriend and girlfriend. Um, and yeah, all of the ground covered here has been covered better in the aforementioned movies, along with stuff like Westworld and even the Terminator, I'd say. And and you think about like the Terminator, that film clarified in a single monologue in a car by Michael Bean. What this movie delivers in endless clunky exposition, like question and answer scenes. 
and and we end up in this awkward position where we get fed too much needless information to keep up with the pacing but also not enough information to understand the android's plan and this is why this is why i think the terminator kept it so simple because it knew that explaining too much that didn't need to be explained would just knock the wind out of the film as is proven here it's just it, it's a it's a film it's like it's a, a film that wheezes along basically the, the only way two things one is the only way that sequence where she's in that visit the pat marita suit and like um gasping and then walking backwards into rooms that make her gasp even more could be improved is if she mm-hmm. when she walked out of the house she walked off in a straight line and her partner sort of jogged in front of her turned around and then sort of walked backwards he said oh, what was it like in there uh, because when people there's a lot of lot of things that only happen in films there yes um, and the other thing is the um the, the, like michael bean in the terminator mm. is, is a beautiful thing and not not in terms of he could be in the bar but there's something about his character in that film that's so sort of romantic and and yeah. also hopeless he's such a beautiful character in that film like where he he's obviously in in love with Sarah Connor, and there's yeah. and, and there's that really like oddly um, romantic love sequence, but also when when she he grabs her and he just says, "It does not care. You can't reason with it. It yeah. will not stop until you're dead." And then she says, "Can you stop it?" And he says, "I don't know." <laughs> like with this i don't know and uh, <laughs> yeah, it just it's such a it's such a beautiful sequence of just it's, I, it's like perfect. everything is a struggle yeah it's a perfect piece of exposition that scene because that's it literally delivers just what you need to know and which is which is brilliant and that's it so you're you he's basically like you've been introduced to the threat through obviously what we've seen of the terminator but he's still a bit of a mystery so along comes Kyle Reese and just he just fills in a bit of detail but it's just like it's just like a bit of sketching it's all you need he doesn't need to go into like the deeper history of it and stuff like that that's all you need to know it's like okay we've got our context brilliant but yes uh, I, I do think as well that if that film had ended with her with her driving off I still think it would be regarded without without the sequel yes as it is today because it is it's so good and, and you realize it's so easy to dismiss. I mean, I watch a lot. Well, we both watch a lot of 80s, 90s sci-fi action, whatever. Yes. And it, you you realize that the, the level of skill and almost restraint that needs to happen for, for, for things to – because it's cheap to make people talk. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. yeah. When it's just it, it takes a lot to get people to just shut up and have that emotion in their eyes and be captured properly. That's all it takes. It's just a yeah. single, well-delivered line. It's perfect. But is I know what you mean about the kind of romantic aspect of his character as well, because it's it's like such a it's quite a genius character, isn't it? Really, because his character motivation. Because of course, it would be enough for him just to be coming back to save the world, sort of thing, to try and save the world, sort to try and save the future. But he's got this. His character is deepened by the fact that he's driven by this kind of like almost infatuating love for Sarah Connor, like almost a mythic kind of love as well. That he gets to meet and fall in love with. But again, yeah. 
all of this, all of this yes. is taken from him looking at a crumpled picture he pulls out of his pocket in one scene. <laughs> good. And we can extract that. Yeah. Yes. It's almost like there are good films or bad films. Uh, Michael Bean is, is another person that um, didn't really didn't have the career that he should have. No. Really didn't. It's, that's a shame. That's a shame. Yeah, it, is, it is a shame. It's a real loss. I, I know it is getting late. I've got a few more to go through, and I, I don't. Or for now, I, I feel comfortable in just saying, don't watch Ninja Academy by Nico Masterakis. Um, which I'm looking at it on IMDb now, and it says it's 3.8 out of 10, which is wrong because this is a film that is is dreadful. It's a it's a police academy ripoff, and I don't even want to talk about it because I was I, I think I just. I think I've given myself lines on my face from just frowning at it as I was watching it. Um, there's there's one, it's it's like Police Academy, there's a load of um, people get together to join this ninja academy and then hilarity ensues. And there's only one funny sequence in the entire film and it's at the start where like a really nerdy guy is always listening to like, cause, you know, because it's filmed in the, it's 1989, so he's got his Walkman on. And he's like really clumsy when it comes to the opposite sex and he's trying to cook someone a romantic meal and he's in a kitchen and he's just like falling around and it's just a series of like pratfalls and things burning and him burning his hand and things smashing. And it's actually, actually quite a funny little sequence. Um, but that 30 seconds does not make up for a whole like sexist, racist film. Um, what I wanted to say, though, before we move on to the sort of last part of the podcast is through watching this, I thought, Jesus Christ, this is genuinely like and I, I don't say this lightly. This is one of the worst films I've ever seen because it's not just not funny, but it's, it's boring. It's like boring and tedious and just really old fashioned. And then so in my through my boredom, I went online and I read about Nico Masterakis because I, I remember yes. an, a, a name that you had mentioned before. Four. In relation to Hired to Kill, the film in which Brian Thompson seduces Oliver Reed. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's where I know from because that film is brilliant. That's the next film, by the way, 1990. But he also did a film called Island Death, his first film, which sounds really, really horrendous. And I think that's on Prime, by the way, Island of Death, because it's I... one of those ones where I keep starting to watch it and thinking, oh, this is just too cheap. Can you can you watch it for me? Can I, can I ever? Um, well, evidently not because I haven't yet. But um, <laughs> yes, okay. I've seen another film by him called The Zero Boys uh, in the mid eighties, which was unbalanced. I would say it was an attempt to marry like um, an action movie with um, a slasher, with a teen slasher didn't really work too well it was really not enough of either (laughs) to satisfy anyone Um, but I don't think he's I mean he's got something about him that elevates him above the likes of Pion and Ho um so we come to the end of the podcast where um unless you've got another film you want to go through particularly I was going to quickly go through, because I need to have at least one decent film to go through today. And I was going to go through 50-50, which is on Prime. because Which I've seen. Excellent. Then we can discuss this. Well, I'll, I'll go through um, I'll go through what I have based on my notes here. So this was, it's a Canon Films movie, <laughs> comedy action movie from 1992, directed by Charles Martin Smith, who some will know as the kind of weedy one from The Untouchables. Uh, but he also directed the very, very underrated 
80s horror trick or treat and it stars peter weller and robert hayes from airplane um now uh, apparently this was originally written in the 80s and it was gonna have um i think it's gonna have sylvester sloan and eddie murphy or something like that anyway i think it went through other people but anyway stallone ended up doing tango and cash instead good so probably a good idea anyway so robert hayes and peter weller they're old army buddies and they're recruited by the cia to take down a local dictator on some island or whatever and they hook up with a revolutionary militia leader who happens to be totally burning heart and speaks perfect english and they train up the clueless locals so there's a bit of like the three amigos i thought here um and men of war with Dolph lundgren as well of course and yeah or i suppose any old western really and yeah. yeah the odd couple thing that they have going on doesn't really work because they're they're old buddies who clearly worked together extensively before and i think for odd couples to be funny they need to be like thrown out together out of conv- circumstance if you see what i mean but these mm. are just friends who just act like an old married couple for no real reason so anyway so both men pursue the lady of course in the most sexist and opportunistic ways imaginable um but even though you know she will eventually melt under their yankee charms she does teach them a thing or two about consent and and also believing in a cause i do think the film is overall is quite wholesome like there's this general arc of these two buffoons basically going from meaningless complacency to actually supporting a cause something which means something uh i mean it's hopelessly naive and sentimental really as a story but like at least there is something there and oh of course charles martin smith's actually in it as well as this shady cia operative anyway uh i thought robert hayes was channeling was trying to at least have the look of a charles bronson here or maybe maybe a more like a chuck norris actually thinking about with a beard but i don't know robert hayes he's not a tough guy is he he's 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 even he's buff but he he's just got too friendly a face i just want to say as well for those those people out there who were trying to place the name he's from airplane yeah because that, that's what i spent the first quarter of the film trying to do he's <laughs> like where's he from again yes uh peter wellows bleached blonde and tanned but he will always look 50 he was probably about 27 at this time or something but now he was uh but they're, they're good. It's, a, it's a cool pairing and uh i thought that this yeah the script was a bit unbalanced because it it's got some really quite crass comedy moments but then it's also quite brutal stuff with some real like genocide moments and uh it's quite a well-made movie i think there's some classy tracking shots some crane shots decent editing pretty kinetic action nice malaysian locations uh it's probably too farcical and exploitative to work as an action drama but it's also too worthy and sentimental to be like a mindless 80s style action comedy but it's worth the watch i would say because it's got production values and it's got an above average script and engaging lead actors and of course lest we forget it has a mansion shootout at the end so good yeah uh, um 
so yeah, I mean, I'm happy to. I've obviously got a little something I want to do, but I I think that um, I'll stop there, and 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 only the sort of uh, is left to, for us to say what we find are our films of the week. Oof. Yes, yes. Um, <laughs> it's, it's been it hasn't been absolutely glowing. I mean, like Encanto is a it's a good Disney movie, but. But also, it doesn't really need a recommendation, does it? Because everyone's watching it. So I'm going to go with fifty fifty. Yeah, no, it was it was a good, it was a solid film. Yeah, I think I'm looking at my. Cause I, had, I had five pages of films, and I've gone through three of them. So I've I've missed out a lot of the ones I wanted to talk about, which I'll keep for next time. Um, including a film star and Rowdy Roddy Piper, where I watched it twice purely to record certain scenes, which I'm in the middle of editing, so I can upload it to YouTube. So so the viewers can really appreciate what I liked about the film. Um, Is that him struggling to run? Well, we don't want to spoil it, Rupert. I (laughs) I didn't even talk about Escape Room Tournament of Champions, which I'll save for next time. But, I mean, I've gone through, obviously you can tell, a kung fu phase, and I would say my movie of the week, I think for for Michael Moriarty, I was really, Mm. really attracted to his performance. And and I I liked how... um, uh, who's the director? Sorry, Larry Cohen. Who yeah. I, I like how he presented this character as like a, just part of this, you know, part of these different sequences of these groups of people around New York, and then slowly he just like bled through the whole film, and mm. it just almost like whereas this monster is this huge thing, the scale almost got weirdly smaller and smaller as it just boils down to you just watching, watching a balding skinny man just be neurotic. And I thought, this is not what I expected from, like, an 80s fantasy horror starring David Carradine. The secret is what what you wanted. Yeah, fantastic. So, for me, the film of the week is Cue the Winged Serpent. Brilliant. (laughs) 50-50 and Cue the Winged Serpent. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, um, so just before I go into the the final sequence of this podcast, I just want to present the arc and stuff for the next episode. Oh, yeah. And that is, if you've got your pencil in your hand, Rupert? I do, my virtual pencil. It is Chloe Grace Moretz right. to Pat Morita. Okay. And uh, just to... Let me just do some prep here for a, a nanosecond. Just to see this one out, I want to say that what's been happening, Rupert, recently is that... Um, uh i people say that you know we talk a lot about films but it takes a lot of skill to make a film to write a film so what i've started doing is i've started writing my own film my own script Mm. and um i'm just gonna this is just the first chapter and i'm just gonna just lay it out there so everyone listening can really drink this in and just you know if i can get some feedback at the the men who talk at outlook.com um yeah, so this is just this is the first chapter of my of my new script. Okay. It was raining in New York. I sat back in my shit brown chair and looked out of the window behind me at the rain because it was raining. I had unscrewed the cap of a new bottle of whiskey called Jesus Christ. And I was just about to get properly on the circus tickets when I heard a knock at my door. It was an unusual knock, to the rhythm of Angel by Massive Attack, but just the first note. 
as I blew out a lungful of cheap cigarette smoke. She kicked open the door whilst making a racist sound and walked into my office. She walked like I did, not falling over, but also not running or jogging, or like it was in comedic slow motion. Just good old-fashioned, one leg in front of the other, eventually slowing her forward momentum until coming to a complete and measured halt in front of my desk, where I would have stopped. I pushed in, I pushed myself out of my inevitably brown chair, stood up with my back to the office window, holding out a tape recorder. I pressed the play button. My voice came through the tiny dictaphone speaker. How can I help you? She frowned. Can you not speak? I hastily rewound the tape using the three-digit counter as a guide before pressing play. No. I again stopped the tape. So you have to use that tape to answer any questions people ask then. I again fumbled with the buttons, fast-forwarding for a few moments. Yes, came my voice from the cassette. That must be irritating, she said. I rewound the cassette for a moment and pressed play. Yes, my voice repeated. What if someone asks a really awkward, specific or convoluted question then? I sighed. I flipped the tape over, rewound it back to the start of side B and pressed play. After a few seconds, my voice again crackled into life. Then it's a right fucking pain in the ass, my voice stated with conviction. I pressed stop. Shut up and kiss me, she said. My trousers were down faster than a 5G foam mask set up in an area of high unemployment. She gasped. I was already hard. Harder than trying to thread a needle on a rotating bouncy castle whilst being strangled during an intense drug trip. Well, she said, I've never... But she never spoke again, because she dropped dead. I looked down at her corpse just as her hand relaxed and something rolled out of it. I didn't need to look. I knew exactly what it was. It was a fiver.